Hey, everybody, what's going on? Josh Wiggler here, filling in for Rob Sesternino on the Better Call Saul podcast on Post Show Recaps. And before we get into talking about episodes six and seven, Pinata and Something Stupid, let me say a little something about our friends over at True Car. Here are some useful car tips you might not be aware of a coffee filter and a little bit of olive oil can clean your interior. Removing excess weight from your car will improve gas mileage. And you can place your key fob to your chin to increase its range. Isn't that strange? Well, here's another tip you might not know about. True Car also helps people get used cars. That's right. True Car isn't just for buying new cars. With their certified dealer network and a nationwide inventory of nearly 1 million used cars, you'll enjoy real pricing on actual inventory and a simpler buying experience, whether you buy new or used. And with True Car, users can see what others paid so they know if they're getting a good deal before buying. They're also more likely to enjoy a faster buying experience by connecting with True Car certified dealers. So when you're ready to buy a new or used car, check out True Car and enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. Better Call Saul, Season 4, Episodes 6 and 7 are over, but we are just getting started here on Post Show Recaps. It's the Better Call Saul podcast here on Post Show Recaps, and if you are uh, a normal listener of the Better Call Saul podcast and not the other podcasts we do here on Post Show Recaps, you're probably like, ah, who's this guy saying something stupid? Well, it's me. I'm Josh Wiggler. I'm filling in for the great Rob Sesternino, and I am here, as uh, as always is here on Better Call Saul, with the great Antonio Mazzaro. Antonio, how you doing, my friend? I'm doing okay, Josh. I'm very sorry to everyone that we did not have a Better Call Saul podcast last week. Rob and his family have suffered a personal loss, and our hearts go out to him. Rob is unable to make the podcast this week. Hopefully, he will be back next week. Uh, so, Josh, I just uh, I just wanted to address that from the top that I'm really um, I'm, my my heart goes out to Rob and his family. Our hearts are definitely out to to Rob, to Nicole, the whole family, uh, and. We're uh, we're picking up the torch while while he is away. Like Antonio says, uh, hopefully Rob is going to be back in action for episode eight. Uh, if not, I'll stick around. If you guys don't shout me away with torches and pitchforks or whack me over the back of the head with a bag of sandwiches. <laughs> Who hits someone with a bag of sandwiches? Huel hits someone with a bag of sandwiches. That's exactly who does it. The guy, the same guy who's listening to Big Mamu. Uh, oh, yeah, man. you are the uh, Saul Goodman to Rob's Jimmy McGill here. Oh my God! So I'm the evil Rob. Is what's going on here? I'm definitely yeah. like the the Rob that wears flashy jumpsuits. That seems to be my thing. Yep, the Rob that sells burner phones. That's, That's definitely right. you. Yeah, so here I am slinging burner phones in uh, in Rob's absence here with Antonio. Like you said, uh, there was no podcast last week, so we did not get to whack into Pinata, which was, I thought, a really fun episode of the season. Um, and I know that we, we certainly, I think, if this had been another episode here in Something Stupid that was going at the normal pace of uh, Better Call Saul this season, I think we probably would have done like a real beat-by-beat uh, blowdown of a blowdown. Jeez, breakdown. Yeah, there's but that, that Saul Goodman coming <laughs> there out. There he is, yep. a, a pinata. Uh, but I think uh, because Ooh. of what happens here in, in Something Stupid, like the action is getting fast forwarded so much. I think a lot of pinata fuels what we see here in Something Stupid. But I think sequentially we should be we should really be talking it through the perspective of this latest episode. 
Yeah, and I've got copious notes from both episodes, uh, what I was going to talk about on the previous podcast. So we'll make sure we hit everything that we well, think is of import. Why not, why not start with at least like a general conversation of, of Pinata, of the episode that got us to, to where we were? Because it was a great episode. It's directed by Andrew Stanton, uh, you know, famously of the Pixar mold. Uh, he is uh, the director of the, I think, unfairly maligned John Carter. Uh, I think that's a better movie than it's given credit for. It's not like the best movie, but it's not the worst movie uh and here he is directing an episode of better call saul uh where jimmy was taking steps towards becoming saul that seemed like really big steps in the context of that episode and then this episode just really slammed it on the gas it really did and um, that's what a good time jump will do for you but we saw the the breakup essentially in pinata at least professionally of kim and jimmy and that professional breakup i think precipitates a very personal one that is approaching or seemingly approaching from the incidents of something stupid so the professional breakup is not as emotional uh, as the something stupid one but we see i think more of what is playing out in jimmy in that moment when kim brings him to the restaurant where they've had so many fun antics together portraying different personalities and tells him of her plan to work at Schweikert and Coakley. And by the way, misrepresents the facts surrounding that plan. Seemingly, she doesn't say I went there with the pitch. She says it was offered to her. Right. Seems to be real, real lawyer ball with the facts there. And yeah, we, I'm yeah. thinking of given the, the scope of the lies that are circulating around this world. I'm willing to give Kim Wexler a pass on that. Oh, for sure. I, I think it's just more representative of where they already are in their personal relationship, that she's not really being truthful with him about that scenario. And I think it's in part because where we see in the, what we see in that episode is that she's looking at his notepad while he's asleep and she sees his little drawings of Wexler McGill and she sees Kim Wexler, banking law, Jimmy McGill and every other kind of law listed under the various iterations of his name. So it's clear like she has a plan. He doesn't have a plan. The only plan he has is to link up with her and she does. She ain't about that life, Josh. She doesn't want to go back to that style of life. And it's in that moment, I think when she gets that and when she sees that notepad that she forms the plan, it doesn't help that Jimmy is, is actually honest with her in the moment and tells her it's a no go on therapy. And they have that, that discussion. And Kim says, you have to do what's best for you. That's what she says to Jimmy. And I think we see that that's later echoed in this episode when Jimmy gets his bearings, when Kim is pitched that she's going to go to Schweikert and Coakley and take Mesa Verde with her there. Jimmy comes out of that kitchen, lurches out of there. And he says like, Kim, you have to do what's best for you. So he's just parroting back to her what she said to him. This is not a, a, a breakup or this is not a relationship that seems to have huge moments of tumult. It's just, there's a breakdown in their emotional connection and there's a breakdown in their intimacy from a communication standpoint. And that's that seemingly is on display in Pinata a little bit with the events, but it's the fantastic montage from the beginning of something stupid that really sums that up. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say, I think it's the, it's the, the slow disintegration of this relationship that we have been seeing here over the course of this season, but especially as escalated in the first, the, the toothbrush montage was what I, what I had labeled it as in my notes, 
but it's so much more than that in this first sequence here of something stupid where just slowly but surely, Antonio, the the leg has been slipping away from uh, Jimmy's side of the split screen line, right? Like, you know, it's she's there's there's been this disintegration between this relationship that has uh, that has been such a driving force of Jimmy and Kim here uh, on this on this season. And it's it's looking it's looking bad, but it's good for the show at the same time, too, because this is this is what you need to to get him to Saul. And I feel like the gentler it is, the easier it is on my heart, because, you know, that some sort of horrible moment is going to occur between these two. But if it really is just sort of like the slow parting of ways, that's at least an easier pill to swallow. Yeah, they're going to have to put their issues on the table. At yeah, some point. it's coming up. It's coming up have to, to really unfurl that the big dramatic scene is coming for sure. But it, it's foreshadowed already in in Pinata in that scene when they're in the restaurant fork, I think it's called, or perhaps it's called 4K. I'm not sure how that's pronounced, mm. which I believe is the real a real restaurant in maybe the Hyatt Regency or a nice hotel in Albuquerque. Um, Kim says to Jimmy, you know, are you sure? Like, and he says, yeah, you have to do what's best for you. And then Jimmy says, I can't ask you to wait around for me. Who knows? 10 months, a lot can happen. And what we see in that 10 months nearly in the montage or a long period of time is nothing really happening, right? Like nothing significant happening. It's this slow slide into this separation that we see. It is a montage. I think that is, we joke a lot on this podcast, Josh, about the montages on Better Call Saul and how they have such fun with them. Uh, there's been some great ones this season, specifically like the uh Street life montage where the with the neon and the puddles and ever right. how that was shot was really great. But this one I think is is their best, maybe the best on Better Call Saul and up there with the best in this entire catalog. I thought when I first watched it, it's hard to keep your eyes on what's going on both sides of the screen. But when you really go back and watch it, it's really heartbreaking because you see them drifting apart in subtle ways. Like she's getting into bed and they're at the same time. They're happy. Then later on, she's getting into bed separately than him and she just puts her leg over him. And then later on, she's getting into bed separately than him and her side goes dark. I think there's a lot of really and he wakes good stuff. Up. Yeah. And he wakes up and he doesn't do anything. Right. Yeah. There are a lot of those little subtle moments. Yeah. You see them show. like eating dinner together. They're having spaghetti and wine he's pouring her more wine at dinner and then you see that they are having dinner uh completely apart you know he's feeding the fish yeah (laughs) while she is at work right first they're separately reading while they're eating at the same spot and then she's just eating in her office and he's eating with the fish so uh and he's pretty soon maybe someone will be sleeping with the fish who knows uh and i mean that in the mafia way not don't wish that upon kim wexler yeah who knows uh but no anything can happen josh 10 months is a lot of time uh but anyway it's uh it's just a really good it's a good signaling we've talked a lot a lot on this show about the need or the desire to have a time jump and i thought it was really nifty the way they accomplished this one maybe a little sloppy in other respects and we'll talk about that on this podcast because we had been boiling some of these other storylines that seemingly we are not addressing yet in the events of something stupid but uh, a time jump is great for the better call Saul universe and i think great for where we're at with these characters and i think they covered what you would want to see during that time in in a great uh, great piece of filmmaking there with that montage reminiscent of citizen kane there's a breakfast relationship going apart montage in citizen kane that's very very famous and i'm sure influenced the events of this in some way but uh the cover of something stupid josh there's a really detailed story have you heard about it no. went through to get this so I don't know. They edited it originally to the uh, famous Frank and Nancy Sinatra version of something stupid, which is the only one I'm familiar with. 
And then they decided it, it was too long or it didn't work or they couldn't get the clearance or something to that effect. So this is a specifically commissioned cover. Uh, they sent out like a bat signal to all these artists and got dozens and dozens and dozens of responses. They narrowed them to 14. Then they narrowed those 14 to two. And this is uh, an Israeli duet, uh, Israeli group, a duo from Israel that they worked with specifically beat by beat to commission this cover for this sequence. That's amazing. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah, well, it, it paid off because I fully back what you just said. I think that this is one of the one of the high marks of Better Call Saul, certainly. And I do think that this montage is is right up there with some of the best that we saw in Breaking Bad. And I think not the least of which, you know, it reminds me a lot of the the crystal blue persuasion scene that you see in in, in Breaking Bad without spoiling that any further for people who don't know. Um, but it, I You're think so nice. I just don't even, I don't even bother. I know, anymore. I know. Well, I'm the Four guest. Like, I'm new here. I don't want to, I don't want to like fart in your, Josh, in once, your once office. Josh, and, once Johnny Diesel uh, caught up, uh, I it's fair game for everybody. <laughs> okay. Right? All right. Well, everyone's dead. No, uh, but you know, that, that, that time jump sequence, I think like any time that the action is being fast forwarded in a way, I think you're probably excited. And I think especially with this show, with this season, I haven't had the chance to deliver my takes on Better Call Saul here across the way. But I echo you guys and many of the masses that this was this has been a very slow go. And here in the back half, it seems like it's really starting to pick up. And I think when you realize that not only is this is this wonderful song playing, this wonderful music is playing and you know that we're in for for some some fun as you're just sensing the fact that one of the driving ideas behind this montage is the parting of ways between Jimmy and Kim. Um, it's also once you start seeing time passing, once you see that it's uh, it's June 3rd and then you see it's Independence Day and then you see it's Labor Day. Like, I think more and more you're just getting kind of excited by the fact that in a very short burst of time, a lot of plot is moving forward. A lot of things that we don't need to see to understand what is occurring in their lives. It's just kind of getting yada, yada, yada through in a beautiful way uh, so that the bulk of the rest of this episode and now with three episodes still to go in the season, we are in that post crystal blue persuasion mode, whereas that was the back half of the final episode of the first half of the final season of Breaking oh, Bad. I'm impressed that I was able to do it. Uh, but I, I think that there's uh, immediately with like the passage of time there's a lot of goodwill that's bought here with the montage aside from the fact that it's just constructed beautifully um and if you, if you don't get the sense of uh of of what's going on with the with the parting of ways of jimmy and kim in that montage you're going to get it a little bit later with like the next scenes that you're going to see with jimmy and kim but before you even go there you know that jimmy is getting very close to the point where he might be able to be practicing law again. And he has not lost his enthusiasm for that uh, with this. Another great sequence where you're in the perspective of somebody and you don't know whose head you're in as you're walking around this guided tour of Jimmy's hopeful new law firm, his new office. Uh, and it's all from the perspective. It turns out of Huel. I think especially given where we know that the rest of the, the episode is going to go with Huel, where he is going to be in so much trouble for whacking a cop in the head to start the, the you know the proper episode outside of the montage inside the head of Huel is just particularly delightful. Very very funny. Uh, that head of Huel is world famous. So <laughs> I know it is. Of it's course. like certainly Reddit famous. Uh, and yeah, this is uh, it's a great place to be. I really like. The, I think what what's happening on this season of Better Call Saul. They are bringing in 
some first time directors to the show and they're bringing in people with different background. Uh, this episode was directed by Deborah Chow. Josh, who directed a, an episode of something we podcast about Mr. Robot. One of the few people who can say, uh, at least I guess maybe there's about eight of them or nine of them that they directed a Mr. Robot episode. Now that Sam Esmail has taken the helm for every episode since season one, right? Uh, she directed season one, episode five, brave traveler. Uh, and yeah, she's got, she's got, I mean, she's a, she's, she's got a lot on her resume and, so I thought this was a really clever way to shoot this scene as well. Just the, the, the point of view. We've seen Jimmy deliver this pitch before. We've seen Jimmy deliver it to Kim in season one when he was first pitching her on the idea of the two of them forming a law firm together. We've seen her him leading her through another site when it actually worked out when it was Wexler and McGill, not Wexler McGill, when they were separate legal practices under one roof, the dentist office, and he was showing her that building. So, of course, the assumption is that he's, we're going to turn and we're going to see Kim and a good laugh that it's Huell and then Huell's response about the high rise and the boat made me laugh a lot too but there's just something heartbreaking in the fact that you're right jimmy's ppd seems to be done and he seems to be completed with everything he had to finish in terms of the actual legal case we see that in the montage the ppd file goes into closed cases so he's done with what he needs to do for the court he's now just waiting out his suspension running the clock yeah running the clock and he's he's do we have any sense of how long he's got left I think I've got like a month left, yeah, I think is it. what he says at some point. So he's about one month away and he he's not in a position where I don't understand. He, he later is seen measuring Kim's office at Schweikert and Coakley. But I, I don't think that he can reasonably believe that he's going to be able to pull Kim out of where she is. In the montage, we see she is experiencing a lot of professional growth and success. We see her putting literal trophies up for every new Mesa Verde branch that she's opened. We see her with clients in the PD. I believe we see her moving from office to office in Schweikert and Coakley, getting bigger offices and building up files. So she really has done clearly a lot in this, uh, in this time jump and he's done nothing except sell cell phones. So I don't know why he expects that it would be fair to assume that, that she might want this. And maybe he knows the pitch is DOA, which is why he's giving it to Huel to begin with. Uh, but it's really, it's really bittersweet and sad uh, that we see this ultimately, even though it's funny um, because we've seen him make this pitch to Kim in the past. And we know he doesn't have Huel in mind uh, when he's making this pitch. He certainly seemingly would want to be partners with Kim at that point. It's very funny uh, when he asks Huel if this is, if this is what the, if this law office would be good enough or and Huel's responses are spectacular. It's first, yeah. so no more cell phones? It's like, this is what the cell phones were for! Yeah, this is what the yeah. money is yeah. for. Exactly. And so if he was a lawyer, he would want a big glass high-rise 40th floor, and that's where he would be when he's not on his boat. I love Huel's idea of a lawyer, and like just the idea that like if he was a lawyer, he would be such a badass lawyer. Yeah. Uh, so that that just on its own, I thought was very funny. But I think to your, to your point, one of the things that I was reading into the scene where um, and I guess we're, we're skipping past the Hector stuff uh, a, a little bit to get into this scene where Jimmy goes we'll to there. we'll get there to, to Kim's office party. Uh, and at Kim's office party, uh, there's, you know, the moment where, as you say, he's like stepping out across the room. She's got 10 steps as opposed to his six steps. Uh, and then he goes out and he starts uh, making an ass out of himself and really like causing a scene and trying to to get under um, Kim's bosses. I'm, I'm blanking on his name to get under Rich Schweikert. Yeah, to get under to, to get under his skin, his and leathery I, skin. And I, I felt like 
this was an attempt on Jimmy's part to maybe, you know, like early shades of what he's talking about doing later in the episode to Kim, like in conversation with Kim, where he's like, we can try like some social engineering to get you out of trouble. To me, it almost reads in retrospect and even a little bit in the moment that Jimmy's like trying to sour Kim's reputation here not effectively because of the business that Kim has been able to bring to this uh, law firm, but I think still trying to do it where maybe he can like make things uncomfortable here. Maybe he can get her to backslide into their situation here a little bit. I think that we have met Jimmy at the moment where he is more than willing to do this kind of stuff. And I think that it, it really draws a lot from his own bitterness that we have seen him engaging in over the course of this season. You can only imagine how that would be heightened over the course of these 10 months. Yeah, it's his own bitterness that I felt drove that scene for sure. I think you make a great observation that I hadn't really thought about, that it was actually perhaps a manipulative action. I think you're right that he's certainly capable of that, and it wouldn't surprise me if that was part of his motivation. I had a slightly different read on it because he comes into the party and he's making nice with everybody. He's laughing it up. He's talking about meeting the these all the famous and the more famous. You know, he's meeting all the people that she works with, and he's being the affable Jimmy McGill. Then he goes into her office and he sees the awards and he measures out the distance and he looks at that award or I should say just the the thing she has framed from a PD client and the note says you believed in me when no one else did and I think that's when his self-loathing is just pulled to the surface because that's exactly what Kim has done for Jimmy throughout she's believed in him when Chuck didn't she's believed in him when Howard seemingly didn't uh, she's believed in him when no one else did she made the case for him to get the job at Davis and Maine she stuck her neck out for him repeatedly and believed in him when no one else did. She was his, uh, his better. I mean, she was everything that he wanted to aspire to be uh, and represented in, in, in flesh. Like that's what she was to him. And I think that note really centers that, that guilt or that feeling in him when he reads that note and says, you were the only person that believed in me when no one else did. He thought that same, same for me. And that's when he emerges from that office and we see him pour a giant drink. And then all we see is that bitterness spilling out. So I think it's probably, a cocktail that's a mixture of all these things right like it's a that's what he's drinking down maybe they're bitters in the drink uh but this is something that i don't think that's how bitters work (laughs) maybe though really I thought I read that right on one of those like D'Agostino or whatever like ads. No, yeah, that's all, no, right. all right. Maybe no. I misunderstood. Uh, but uh, I'm, 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 I'm not I'm not a bitters man myself. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I think that uh, I think that that's a huge part of it is that he's he's got that self-loathing, like you're saying. And I think that's really ultimately a huge part of what unfurls on Rich Schweikert. He's clearly just being a jerk. And the aftermath of that scene is brutal because Jimmy has pushed Schweikert into a corner with their retreat. And so Oh yeah. Start it starts in Telluride, right? And it starts with a bus ride to Telluride and it ends with a plane trip to Aspen with everyone right. having matching gear. Telluride um, on steroids, yeah. Exactly. So when are we it, getting well, post show recaps, Parkas, by the way? Well, listen, let's uh put that on the list. You tell me, buddy. I'm ready. All right. Uh, that's I'll look into all it. I will wear uh forever. Uh, like I guess I'll wear nothing pants else. Too. Yeah, no, I guess I gonna I'm say. not gonna Donald Duck it. Uh, yeah. we're gonna make this work, but uh <laughs> But yeah, Man, no. Yeah. Just, uh, let's get off this topic. Yes, uh, yes. There's yeah. things to say, and we don't want to say them. They end up in the car on the way home, and they don't even have anything constructive to fight about. As that, this is a huge part of why I know something bigger is coming. Right? They don't really sort this out. What they do is Kim says that was something. Jimmy says, "Yep," and turns the radio on, and it's rough. Like it's just. Uh, 
the Ohio's own uh, the breeders come on the radio and it's just loud music and then we go to commercial at least when you're watching it with commercials so not uh, not the best moment for their relationship and they didn't they didn't sort it out this is a breakdown of communication she didn't say why did you do that he didn't say I'm sorry none of that happened this is a a wound that will fester for sure among many others fester yeah I think uh, for for me what's so upsetting is Kim has every reason in the world to especially by the end of this episode to tell Jimmy to just shove off and like get away from this and just break it off Um, and she's not doing that yet and she's clearly still feeling emotionally tethered to him whether or not that's um, you know I mean it's not a healthy thing the way that he is acting the way that he is uh, the way that he's treating her by the way that he's lying about his life what he's doing to himself is very very difficult for her to weather very clearly but she's been so ride or die with him that she's not even um she's not even piping up about it and you can understand where she's coming from with that she's got her own life she's got her own situations that she has to deal with but i do think when you're in kim's position in a relationship and the other person that you're in the relationship with is uh is in such a a a bad way and is in such dire straits you just want to give that person so much space to process their grief or whatever it is they're going through whether it's in her perception still jimmy's unreconciled feelings about chuck's death or whatever it is just wants to treat him like he's an adult and he can handle it and then like the the transition from getting to like how you just let the person be their own person and deal with their own stuff and then when is it time to like say something or when is it time to do something for yourself if you're already past that point where you no longer can say the thing that's productive to help bring that person back i feel like that's where Kim is in and I I just I wonder if the type of confrontation we're in between Kim and Jimmy much in the way that their relationship has kind of been might be a little bit like I don't know a little mundane and maybe not as violently dramatic at least on Kim's part like maybe not even in the way that she like screams at Howard in the office earlier in this season I can imagine her very calmly being like yeah I'm done I'm out and like Jimmy's just pushed her away at this point. Yeah, you're right. It could be like leading to a fizzle, but these are two lawyers who like uh, classic films. So that would be very anticlimactic uh, for their characters. But I think you're right in terms of the nature of the relationship. It's circling the drain. And we've seen that imagery in this season of Better Call Saul. We've seen the circling the drain imagery. And I think that's exactly what's happening with the two of them. And yeah, they're tethered together by some unassailable force, but that unassailable force will pull them into a position where they're eventually separated. And so that's, that's where they are. It's unfortunate that they're in these throws because we talk about a pinata uh, and we talk about how in pinata Kim was not completely honest with Jimmy about the PD work or I'm sorry about the Schweikert and Coakley job but she also wasn't honest with him about the PD work she did not tell him I've been taking these PD cases this is something that I've been doing and it's important to me so this is a communication breakdown that's been happening for a long time he does not tell her similarly uh, in something stupid about the cell phone work and I'm not shocked that he doesn't tell her oh by the way i'm selling burner cell phones from an old burnt out shonies or wherever that is uh living in a van down by the river right uh, with this guy this pickpocket named yule who i uh, contacted through a veterinarian who runs the local underworld connections uh no this is not something that he's been honest with her about i thought it was a real uh, seemingly like just the imagery is sets up uh, says a lot more about the relationship when he goes and he makes this great pitch to Huel because of course 
Huel gets arrested for the sandwich incident. That is something that Jimmy feels responsible for. Uh, Jimmy has been, he's, he's, he's just been really facing off with the police officer. So the police officer is not going to cut him a break. Uh, and he feels like it's his fault. Uh, Huel goes down. Huel's going to flee. And Jimmy says, let me work my magic. I'm a magic man. I'm a magic man, not a lawyer. Don't worry about me as a lawyer. I'm a magic man. Jimmy has no magic. His only magic is to go to Kim and he doesn't call Kim and talk to her at home about this or anything. He's sitting in the lobby of Schweikert and Coakley waiting for an appointment with her. And that's rough, man. Like he's now on her wait list. Like he is not somebody who can just walk into her life. He's somebody that has to talk to an assistant or wait in a waiting room before he can see her. And he's almost like a client in that respect. And when he tells her about the cell phone stuff, you're right. The the real heartbreaking part of it is she says like, you've been selling burner phones out of the back of a whatever. And instead of like them being that being an issue, she swallows it. She's just gone. And she says, all right, I'm just going to confront the case. It's fine. Yep. It's good. And, then the moment where that scene ends is is very godfather like uh at the end of the godfather where the door she slams the door in jimmy's face like right. you, you know don't ask me about my business jimmy like and the door shuts in his face that's something we've seen on the show before too it's in season one episode nine when jimmy and chuck and howard are sitting in the conference room uh, and they're talking about why jimmy can't work on the sandpiper case and kim is asked to leave the room and as kim leaves the room the door is shut in her face and the shot is is blocked and staged very similarly to this one uh kim has uh, she's occupied a different space now and that's teased in pinata as well i'm wondering how do you feel about kim occupying more of a chuck-like role in jimmy's life at this point yeah i mean i think that's very a very similar dynamic where um Kim has Kim is ascendant, you know, even as the relationship is circling the drain, Jimmy is falling and Kim is rising. And it's not unlike where it was for for Jimmy and Chuck, where Chuck was rising through his career and Jimmy was slipping Jimmy and, you know, uh, not selling phones on the street, but, you know, like dropping other things off in people's vehicles. Oh, dear. You know, so, <laughs> you know, it's it's a it's, sunroof. You know, he's certainly at this moment in time, he's in a better spot than and he was there, uh, you know, when he's confronted by the cop, the cop isn't like even, you know, questioning the legality of what he's doing. Uh, so at least there's that. But he's still he's still lying to the closest person in his life. And I think as much as there is a self-loathing in Jimmy, and I think that that is very, very real it's impossible not to detect like some sense of loathing toward Kim's success. And I think that that is absolutely how he used to feel towards Chuck and this feeling of like, Oh, you think you're so much better than me. And I don't think that that's how Kim views Jimmy at all. I think Kim, the, the feeling that I get from Kim is Kim is consistently um, heartbroken by Jimmy and, and like surprised by the lies and kind of taking it as, as a matter of fact deal because she's very rational and that's just how she's dealing with it. That's how she's processing it. And I think she's denying herself some righteous fury towards this guy, but I think she loves Jimmy and she wants to help him out. And I think that she doesn't, she doesn't view herself as, as better than him. Um, but when he comes to her and he says, that, you know, he needs his help about everything that happened to Huel. Like there's, and, and I've been, I've been hucking, you know, I've been huckstering cell phones on, on the side. Like, I think she's got no choice other than to just like kind of snap into that business mode. And I'm, I'm so eager to find out, uh, how she is going to then address him 
once this whole deal with Yule is over, because you can tell that she's kind of just in tunnel vision mode right now, right. just trying to carve her way through this current situation. Right. And, and I think you're right that she doesn't see herself as better than Jimmy. This is seated very properly at the beginning of Pinata with that flashback from 1993, where we see the time when Jimmy and Kim both worked in the mailroom together and Kim was a hotshot, right? She was already in law school. She was a three L she was impressing Chuck with her case knowledge and she was geeking out over the case that Chuck had won seemingly with his knowledge of only obscure precedent. And Jimmy couldn't care less. He was making jokes uh, or he could care less, I guess, or he couldn't care less. Uh, he doesn't care at all. <laughs> He's making jokes about asses and platters and, and not really caring about the result. And Kim was very different. And when Chuck and Howard walk away from that scene to meet Mr. Bushmills in Howard's office, Jimmy says to Kim, that's going to be you one day. And I think that's fascinating to think about when we are in this position that we're in with something stupid where Kim is occupying this ascendant role, as you're observing, that she's already in that role. Like Jimmy has said it in 1993 when they were running the Oscar pool and she was the hot shot in the mailroom. And here she is. Like he predicted it. He was right. But the other real killer part about that scene is it was her being impressed by Chuck's legal acumen that seemingly caused Jimmy to want to become a lawyer. We see almost immediately after that scene he draw he takes his mailroom cart by the law library and he enters the law library seemingly beginning his hero's journey to becoming Saul Goodman uh, entering that law library crossing the threshold uh, and picking up the legal materials and accepting his role uh, in this drama so that is the moment where he decides to become a lawyer and if you buy that then you buy that he he probably decides to become a lawyer to impress Kim Wexler much the way his brother Chuck did right uh, and having Chuck removed from his life now in part because of things that Jimmy and Kim did to him and both feeling partially responsible for that and her now occupying that place of superiority it doesn't really matter how she feels about him. It's his own self-loathing that's getting in the way and that's causing him the problems that he's having. And I think uh, in uh, the spirit of giving a, a fuller picture, you know, and to, to continue pushing through this Jimmy and, and Kim storyline, keep wanting to say Jimmy and Kimmy. It's very hard. Tongue twister on in the making. Uh, you, you get you get this scene where she goes to court and she's trying to tell her adversary, like, you know, this is this is uh, there's there's you know, this there's no history of violence here. And the people that you've perse- you, you've tried in the past uh, are, you know, you, you barely threw the book at them, all of this. And then this person's like. Our only witness is a scumbag disbarred lawyer who peddles drop phones to criminals. And when you put the the picture of Jimmy in in that light and throw it back at Kim, that's a that's a really tough pill to swallow. And she sa- says something to the effect of like, you don't have the full story. And then right. she walks away and like, that's the thing that causes her to back down. And for me, that's twofold. Um, the first reaction that I had to that was her being faced with the reality of of what Jimmy looks like to other people, if not necessarily the reality of who Jimmy is to her and now having to consider that that is who Jimmy McGill is. Uh, so there's that one read, which was my first read. And then I think the, the second read here that it really hadn't occurred to me until you were talking about it is Kim's own guilt over Chuck's death and the role that she played in that. And that the reasons why Jimmy is where Jimmy is at, Kim feels like she probably shoulders some of that burden. 
Definitely. Definitely. And she's not, it's, you know, the whole idea of my brother's keeper. That's fantastic. When you look at the drama between Jimmy and Chuck, but I think Kim, whether or not she's occupying the Chuck role in Jimmy's life, she does feel responsible for him. And as you're observing, responsible for his situation in some way. And she understands the full story that Chuck was persecuting Jimmy. She had that huge blow up against Chuck in a previous season where she said, you've berated him his whole life. You've done all of the these things to him. You did this and you did that and you never give him a chance and you never took him seriously. And the whole Shakespearean drama that played out between the brothers, she was an observer of a lot of it. And she had a pretty intimate, uh, she had a pretty intimate view of how that impacted Jimmy. And so she does have a lot more sympathy for the guy, but that can only go so far. And I think the fact of the matter is she's moved on emotionally. He's no longer the support system for her that he was. She has built her own life and it doesn't include him. He's just meeting the people that work on her team for the first time, seemingly 10 months into her job. And they all live in the same city and she goes to work every day and he's a lawyer with nothing else to do. Like I'm shocked that they've not met before. He's not met any of her colleagues. And so this is odd because it is such a small town and because he is a lawyer and I, it, it just shows, I think, that he's not playing a very active role in what she's building at Schweikert and Coakley. He's very separate from all of that, perhaps by her design, perhaps not. But I, I think she has she has separated him from her life already. I Before I even saw this week's episode, in last week's episode in Pinata, I had in my notes that that was a breakup scene in that, uh, in that hotel in 4K, that they, she was breaking up with him professionally, if not personally. And I think the two, maybe, uh, at least uh, in this case, are perhaps more linked that that we than we would have realized last week, and I think yeah. we saw that play out this week for sure. It's uh, it's really heartbreaking. I think they did, they've done a good job. I had said with Rob Josh on this podcast that it took two and a half seasons for us to get to the climax uh, in Chuck's trial and chicanery uh, and, and Jimmy's trial with Chuck's testimony and chicanery in season three, episode five or uh, six or whatever that is, and. We people said the show was slow before that. When's he going to become Saul Goodman? It's so slow. But we got to that episode and we said, wow, like that was so good. I didn't care about anything else in the show. I was I was enwrapped to the entire episode. Best episode of Better Call Saul. Fantastic. Well, that's because it, it took two and a half seasons to build to that moment. And I think the Jimmy and Kim story, if you rewatch Better Call Saul, they're a little bit at arm's length. They clearly have some kind of relationship in the in the first season. But season two does the job of immediately reseeding everything between the two of them as the central issue for Jimmy's character other than Chuck. So they've been building that throughout season two, throughout season three. And now here we are in season four, two and a half seasons later with a lot of that story built up. So this is coming. It's a slow build, but it's a build that I think is going to have devastating emotional results because they've taken the time to build it. So it it certainly was on display in this episode between the two of them. And you got to imagine it's coming very, very soon, or at the very least, some other major conflict is on its way between Jimmy and Kim that you got to imagine is going to lead to the breakup, the official breakup between these two, because Kim tries to do her thing. As we, as we mentioned before, clearly the, uh, the the other lawyer is not going to budge. This is not going to work out. Kim is not going to be able to get Huel into a situation where he is not facing jail time. He's going to at least be facing a little bit of jail time. She thinks it won't have to be two months or or, or two uh, two years 
years, rather 18 months, whatever it is. Uh, but it's, she's gonna, she's gonna, she's not gonna be able to just completely get him off. Uh, and Jimmy having talked to Huel, he was like, I'm not going to jail. I'm going to run. I have places I can go. I will walk. Yeah. What does he say? Like, you're going to get pulled over in three years for a taillight that you can't. And and he's like, well, I won't bust my tail. (laughs) Just fantastic. Uh, So, so we know that, uh, that, that Huel does not want to face any jail time. And so when Jimmy hears from Kim that he's going to have to face a little bit and you're going to need to back my play, he's going to call you after I see him and you just need to back my play. And Jimmy just at first is trying to yes her to death and like kind of talk to her ambiguously to leave himself enough space to do his, you know, slipping Jimmy thing, or I guess his Saul Goodman thing as he has been going by Saul Goodman in these uh, intervening 10 months when he's approached by the police officer. It's because he found a Saul Goodman uh, business card in a drug dealer's wallet when he busted him. So Jimmy is in this in this montage has become Saul Goodman. I mean, we know, of course, that that had happened earlier in the series, but he's resurrected that alias again. So this isn't even slipping Jimmy at this point. He's he's Goodmaning it up. He's um, Saul Goodman. And this clearly shows, I, I think he's building a name on the streets. Uh, this is a built in way for him. Totally. When he goes back to the practice of law, why be Jimmy McGill? He's known as Saul Goodman with exactly. the people that he wants to represent. So here we are. Yeah. So we're already there. So that's really fast. And that's really great. Like we're in that we're in that place of momentum with with the with the Saul Goodman stuff right now. So we're at a very exciting point in the story. But I think that the fact that he's trying to be like, yeah, okay, that that makes sense. Uh I'll I'll I'm sure we'll see what we'll see what happens. He's like, what do you mean we'll see what happens? You're gonna back my play, right? And that's when he gets like a little more specific, but still vague. Where he's like, you do your thing, I'll do mine. She's like, what does that mean? He goes, don't worry about it. And then he drives off. So at this point, it's almost like Jimmy has revealed to her so nonchalantly the fact that he's been selling street phones on the side. Kim had such a like a calm, detached reaction to it that he may have been expecting like to get his head bitten off uh, potentially, and that did not happen. That like even now, like it's almost like he's got like the arrogance or the confidence that uh, that went over so smoothly. So now I can just be the most alpha version of myself, which is this Saul Goodman character. Uh, and you can't imagine that Kim is going to abide that. For long, the thing that um, makes me nervous is the end of the episode with Kim when she goes and she's buying all the office supplies and she desperately calls Jimmy and says, whatever you're doing, don't do it. I have a better way. Um, is it some version of one of like the more trickstery things we've yes. seen Kim do with Jimmy before? Yeah. And so is she being sucked into the vortex in this moment? I think what we're going to see ultimately next episode is that Kim will have taken something positive from Jimmy. I don't think it's going to be a, a vortex sucking negative moment for Kim. I think it's going to be Kim. What, what she understood or what happened, what we see in that scene, what she understands is that Jimmy says, I'm going to do it my way. And Kim starts driving away. And I think what's going through her head in that moment uh, is what is his way? What would that look like? What do you think he could do? Who is he? He's a flamboyant showman. He's the kind of guy who makes a scene, who knows, knows how to knows how to take and make a PR stunt or something to that effect. Right. And I really think that's, that's where she's going with this. I don't think that's a vortex moment for her. I think that that's her realizing 
there are things about Jimmy McGill that are positive and that you can use that are traits that can actually have a positive impact on what you're doing. It's unquestionable that he was good at some of the things that we've seen him do in the past. Uh, he was, he makes a good commercial. Like the guy knows how to, how to tug at the heartstrings with what he's doing. Like we know that he's good at that. We've seen him do it in multiple instances. Uh, he was pretty successful with some of his endeavors in the past. The billboard stunt worked very well. And yeah, those are a little bit out of bounds and they're a little bit ginned up, but on the other hand, they work. And so I think knowing what we know about Kim uh, and her love for To Kill a Mockingbird and Atticus Finch and knowing what we know about the unfair treatment of Huel Babineau, I think she's going to make a big deal out of this. I think those markers are probably for uh, some kind of signs or protests or something to that effect. And I think we're really going to see her do the Jimmy McGill thing and create a controversy here surrounding this incident, bring bad PR to the police department uh, and really touch on that incident to to win her client some uh, some sympathy. So I think that's what she's doing. And I think that's a Jimmy McGill play. And what's the motivation behind that? Is it purely because she loves Jimmy and wants to do right by him? Or is it like, I'm going to do this last thing for Jimmy and then it's, it's water under the bridge and I am absolved of any debt that I owe this guy. Like, where do you see that aspect of this going? I think it's a to kill a mockingbird thing. So I think she wants to help Huel. I think that's part of it. I think she wants to help a client because she has this warrior complex that has led her to nearly give up a multi-million dollar seemingly now banking client uh, and throw that business aside uh, to pursue helping the persecuted. Uh, and she sees this as a truly uh, unfair case. She she knows she's done her homework, as she said. So I think her motivation in part is to win this thing and to help Huel and to really help that this particular client. I think the Jimmy way is her way of saying like, okay, I can give into this a little bit and I think your way might actually work. We've seen in the past that she enjoyed some of the capers that she ran together with Jimmy. They had a lot of fun being different people or running uh, seemingly harmless cons on people like Ken wins uh, to, to get just, just really just to tug at their strings a little bit. No other reason. They never profited other than a little bit of tequila from what they did. So we've seen her really embrace and enjoy a lot of the Jimmy McGill life when it's appropriate. And I think she thinks that this is probably an appropriate time to do it. I don't think this is a one last hurrah thing. What I do think is that you're right that she's tunnel visioning on this and that once it's off the table what's going to be left is this thing where she has to confront jimmy about everything that's come before right that put them in this position where she had to or she ended up in this in this particular case i don't think this is going to tank her legal career i mean it could right she could stick her neck out in a way that schweikert and coakley could want no part of but i i don't see that happen yeah that's not quite the nightmare scenario the nightmare scenario for the reason why kim wexler is not in the breaking bad portion of this story is, is something unspeakable as far as i'm concerned um but one of the nightmare scenarios could be uh that jimmy is going to directly lead kim who is at the height of her success into her own vortex of of doom professionally and i i really don't want to see that i just feel like at a certain point um you know through through everything that we saw in this episode like she really needs to process the fact that jimmy was doing something in his nine to five day-to-day life that was completely different from what he was claiming to do and i i cannot imagine that sits well with her and i can very much see the scenario where uh this is you know she washes her hands of this case and she really takes that to task and that could be the end of this relationship like i could see it being as simple as that yeah um, could be 
but who could knows? Be. Who knows? It could be. It's uh, it's it is definitely we're we're building to that for sure. Some kind of moment between the two of them, uh, and Jimmy is nothing if not. Uh, one to set up professional downfall. We saw what's what in Pinata. We saw what that looks like with regard to HHM. Like that's not going well for Howard and it's not going well for Howard because of everything that happened with Chuck. Now, some of that is Howard's undoing for sure, but Jimmy put himself in a position where he was able to pass a lot of the guilt off to Howard and let Howard blame himself. And we end up with a Howard that is disheveled. Josh that drops a hard F bomb on Jimmy in his office. Uh, Jimmy calls him a shitty lawyer but a good salesman which maybe yes. is not the worst way to describe jimmy uh, either so there's a great scene there in that episode one of the casualties of the time jump uh is that we don't see where howard howard hamlin is 10 months later yeah that is definitely a big question i mean there's there's a couple of characters who we don't get to check in on at all but nacho. While yeah nacho being the other big one um where that you know that's got to drop at some point is what's been going on with nacho this season uh in these past 10 months what's going on with howard in these last 10 months and while we've been seeing so much success on kim's side of the line uh and for uh for schweiker like you got to imagine HHM, whenever we check in on them, you can certainly imagine the scenario where uh, Howard, who was already in dire straits, is uh, like that that beautiful platinum blonde hair might not be there anymore. Oh my gosh, a bald uh, Patrick Fabian, no way. Like, it's impossible. <laughs> this is Moneymaker, that hair. Yeah, he's genetically it's, perfect. His Targaryen way. locks. No, it's not going to happen. I won't let it happen. Yeah. His trademark hair that we saw Jimmy mimic in season one. Uh, no, that can't happen. God, that would be terrible. But I mean, he's already loosening his tie and not having his like tie rods and stuff like that. So, what's next for Howard Hamlin? But yeah, we've seen Jimmy uh, have, have create a negative professional vortex in this series already. So, it's not shocking to think that it might happen with Kim. I think she's too smart for that. I think she understands what she can and can't get away with. Uh, Jimmy created his own negative professional vortex with Davis and Maine, uh, put the commercial out there knowing that he didn't have approval to do it uh, and shot first and asked questions later. Uh, and Kim knows the, the consequences of what happened with that. I don't see her making that mistake with regard to Huel Babineau. I think she's got latitude at Schweikert and Coakley. I don't think she's going to put herself in a position where she harms herself with Mesa Verde. I mean, it's possible that, you know, Mesa Verde might have a problem with her actions. We'll see how this all plays out. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know. That's only assuming that that's what she's going to do based on her to kill a mockingbird nature. And the fact that she's buying all those office supplies uh, for all I know, she's going to go donate those to a boys and girls club and her plan is separate. So I guess TBD on how this plays out, but that seems to be very in keeping with her character. And I don't think it's so sideways that it's something she can't get away with. So we will see, but I agree that once Hewl is out of the way, uh, this is a problem. Uh, speaking of things being out of the way though, we talked about Nacho Varga. I, I will say this is a criticism I have of, of a show where I was desperate for a time jump at many respects we had nacho on full boil like the guy was dying in papa's living room josh and now we've skipped 10 months and we don't know i guess he's just recovered and he's under gus yeah, Spring's thumb and that's that. he's fine i expect he's physically okay uh and i imagine that the arc for for nachos that he is continuing to to be in the employee the secret employee of of gus but but you got to wonder like how far along is he in terms of his psychological recovery after 
the shitstorm he's been in through season four so far. But I mean, I think that the answers to those questions are coming. I just think that there's so much business that has to be attended to here with the process of this final thrust for the Jimmy and Kim relationship, potentially, uh, that that has to be the vast majority of the focus on on the story this week. Yeah, it's just weird because Nacho wasn't in Pinata either. And so sure, you've got a couple of times you've got a couple of times where now it's an issue with, with Better Call Saul, right? I mean, yeah, sometimes they back burner these storylines and they yeah. don't show up or Mike's not in the season finale or whatever happens happens. But yeah, that's just uh, it's just something that's out there. Um, he's in the employee of Gus Fring. The cousins went back to uh, they went back south of the border seemingly because the heat was too hot after everything that happened. So yeah, I mean, maybe he's just been laying low and working with Gus Fring in some way, shape or form and running some local drug stuff. And that's that. So I guess TBD, it just seemed like he was so close with everything that was happening. He was like right at the verge of falling completely apart. Uh, and then we've put that on the burner now for like a nine month span. So I guess we'll just, we'll just meet Nacho where he is and we'll see how that, where, where that takes us. And that'll be that. I mean, it just, it's just a shame. I don't know if you had to guess because we had a hint in pinata at the beginning. Uh, one of the movies that was suggested was a real movie from 1993 Howard's end. Josh, if you had to guess, would you think, would you say it was which character is more likely not to survive season four, Howard or Nacho? Ooh, I think, um, not to survive season four, not to survive. I, I feel like Nacho's got more story ahead of him than Howard Hamlin does. Like, I think that Howard, uh, while Patrick Fabian is great as that character, I feel like his role in the story feels like it is it is diminishing like he's a he's a character where i understand why better call saul has not found a ton of use for howard uh nacho like you said was in full blast for so much of this season so far that i'm still very curious as to where things are going with nacho whereas with with howard i'm i'm fine with him being used fairly sparingly because it really does seem like he's it's uh, we're at howard's end or we're at least very close so gun to my head and please don't do that i'm going to pick howard to to leave the show before the end of season four sooner than nacho at the very least yeah the only potential plot armor that he has is the flash forward to breaking bad timeline scene from this season where Jimmy and Francesca are shredding and are about to go to the vacuum cleaner salesman. And Jimmy gives Francesca a very specific time and says, if I'm, if I'm not there, you know, do this. And he, he gives her a legal referral and says, tell him Jimmy sent you. And so I do wonder if that legal referral was, was HHM or Howard, or maybe that was Kim. We don't know yet, but uh, if that's Howard, and then that maybe is a little bit of uh, armor for Howard to survive. But we, I mean, if you, if you said Howard hasn't been sleeping, he's, falling apart and now we've jumped forward 10 months the howard hamlin that we see a hairless howard would not be crazy so around I'm, howard perhaps around howard <laughs> like ron howard but rounder yeah uh, i don't know exactly where we'll see uh howard but i'm not looking forward to that hopefully they don't go the way josh of mrs strauss uh mrs strauss no longer with us <laughs> i know r.i.p 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 uh very sad for for mrs strauss and very sad for jimmy right like this is i think he took this death harder than he took the death of chuck at yeah least he allowed outwardly. himself some like emotionality in, on that phone call yeah and going home and watching the tape you know he was upset about what happened with strauss he was also asking about the alpine shepherd boy perhaps uh not because he wanted to know uh, about old clarence and if he graduated college but perhaps because he wanted to get the alpine shepherd boy but he I was left in left to interpretation i chose to look at it charitably but i there's certainly i know for a fact that rob would not i, <laughs> I guarantee know he you rob would not 
That's what I, I mean. I knew as soon as I was thinking, as soon as I was, I was like, Rob is going to say yeah. that Jimmy wanted to go rip that old lady's button, you know, wake off and take that Alpine Shepherd boy from her house. I know. That's why he was asking immediately. But I agree with you. More charitable. He was just curious. That's what he remembered about her. She brought Hummel into his life. So that's that. But I mean, you're right. Open to interpretation for sure. But this is a Jimmy McGill who's dealing with that. And he, he's feel, he feels I, that this is somebody that played a moment in his life, not just in that first season, but in the second and third as well. She was at the disbarment trial. She was involved with the commercial for Davis and Maine. This is somebody who played a role throughout all three seasons. So we're shedding a lot of these things behind with Jimmy McGill. We're leaving behind the Jimmy McGill life, and he is fully becoming Saul Goodman, and this is part of it as well, for sure. Um, all right, so there's two other storylines from uh, Something Stupid that we should talk about. There's everything that's going on with Gus. There's everything that's going on with Mike, which by extension is going on with Gus, but Mike is more directly involved. Um, which one do you want to talk about? There's only you know a couple of scenes between these two storylines. Let's talk about let's talk about Gus for a minute. Ding 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 ding. <laughs> that's what I wanted to talk about too. Yeah, I did. I, I was trying to subtly drop uh, some clues. That that is what I wanted you to check out. <laughs> uh, were you knocking a glass off of a off of the, a tray table, and that's you wanted me to bend over and pick it up? Is that what it was? Uh, ridiculous stuff going on here with uh, with Hector Salamanca, who is clearly improving to the point that we see him in Better Call Saul, where he or in Breaking Bad, rather, where he is able to communicate by tapping his finger on a table but what we were not appreciating at any point in time until now or at least i wasn't i I don't think that the show had ever made it clear that hector could have improved potentially a lot more beyond (laughs) beyond where he ends up in breaking bad and gus is the one who is he's very closely monitoring all of hector's progress and he rewatches the tape and sees Hector spilling the cup over so that he can check out the nurse. Uh, and he realizes that Hector is still in there and Hector is trapped in there. And if he no longer has this rigorous work towards uh, making sure that Hector is at least some semblance of himself, now he can really have Hector in hell. Uh, and that's incredible. I, I, I don't know about you. I, I definitely did not see anything like that coming. No, it's great, but it's also, and I, I, without spoiling it, it's such an Achilles heel for everything that happens with, uh, with between Hector and Gus and all the characters in Breaking Bad. Um, this is, we're seeing, it, it, it's a great story and it's great character stuff. Giancarlo Esposito can barely hide his glee yes. when he realizes he has Hector alive and he has Hector present in the moment brain-wise, but completely ruined physically such that he is a complete prisoner of his. He can barely hide his glee, and yet it is this torturous glee that will cause problems for him in the future. So this is not something that that is is a joyful story. This is not something to celebrate. Uh, what we're seeing is uh, is uh, the early seeds of something that will cause problems, as I said later on down the line. So this is uh, all great stuff, but it's really dark, man. Like this, uh, Gus Fring is a monster, and we saw him as like a tiger shark earlier in the season when I think it was Arturo uh, Nacho's buddy gets got by Gus Fring in that dark parking lot. Right. Uh, but this is some dark shit for sure. Like this is some serial killer stuff from Gus Fring. But I mean, it makes sense in, in the light of um, what happened in the previous week in Pinata when he, when Gus goes and he tells Hector, though Hector cannot hear him, the story of the animal that he trapped 
trapped, you know, out of pure spite, this injured animal who he kept alive because he had like stolen from his fruit tree or whatever. Uh, and like, it's very, that's very much certainly in the large scheme of things, foreshadowing his relationship with Hector. But I think that there was no way to know that, that was also setting up the fact that Gus is going to elect to have Hector in this state forever when he could have chosen to have Hector get healthy for whatever reason. Uh, so those instincts that have been lifelong within Gus, uh, not only being somebody who is prone to vengeance, but somebody who is prone to creative vengeance, uh, right. that that is something that's been within him for a very, very long time. And now I think in, in the wake of this episode, we are beginning to appreciate the extent of that creativity. The extent of the creativity, as I said, is serial killer stuff. I mean, yes. it's the stuff of legendary madmen. So good for Gus Fring, I guess. Like, <laughs> Great television, man, yeah, though. I good mean, for H.H. H. Holmes here. Like, this is terrible stuff. But, yeah, but uh, it's yeah a, great it's television. A, I think it's it's a great character note. I think uh, for for that to be, you know, we certainly know that the that the how the how the Gus and Hector stuff is going to bear out if you've if you've made it that far through Breaking Bad. And I think for this added layer, uh, this is this is the kind of thing that I really really enjoy better call Saul for and how it enriches the other show that we have seen. I really definitely. This. I yeah, this, this is great. good. And it, it, it pays off. You're right. You're right to connect it to the monologue from last week. Uh, it is almost too convenient in a way that 10 months later or however, however long the time jump was, uh, we have a moment that really shows exactly what Gus was talking about in that monologue, but the two are very directly connected for sure. And this is somebody that he has ensnared now. And it's uh, somebody that has emerged broken from the snare uh, and that he will now uh, choose to fight to the death, essentially. And that's where we were. We, you know, these two characters are pitted against each other. Uh, he's going to let him suffer. And we we know that this is a this is a Gus Fring who is a monster in that way. Um, very fascinating to see that play out in real time in a similar dinner, Josh, to when he asked Walter White to dinner yes. uh, in the at the end of season three of Breaking Bad. Uh, I think it's the Abiquiu episode. Um, very very funny stuff, uh, but also very dark. He's handling a knife in his kitchen, making the exact same meal and firing a doctor in the middle of a conversation because he realizes when he catches uh, the eye acting of Hector Salamanca in a peep sesh that he's in there and he's alive. I mean, Gus, Gus is, he's so good. He's just, his attention to detail is just incredible. I mean, what was that? You know, <laughs> you know, it's exactly just like shades of him knowing that he should not go to his car. You know what I mean? Like, exactly. It's, it's, it's so great. Um, the other thing that we get from the 10 month uh, time jump is the um, the progress on what's happening with the meth lab at the laundromat and how Werner's crew is acclimating to life at this secret headquarters that Mike has uh, pimped out for them with basketball courts and pool tables and it's all the big the brother TVs. house. He built a German big brother house, Josh. And if Rob were here, that's what we'd be talking about. Of course, but I'm here and we don't talk about big brother when I am. Around. It's the jury house, right? It's, it's Ponderosa. Josh. Sure. Built sure. Ponderosa for them. Fair enough. But no, I mean, if, if this is big brother, this is, I have, have to imagine without even really watching a lick of big brother that this is the hardest version of big brother there is this is a 10 month big brother that's a lot of big brother yeah that's pretty bad uh this and is you can not see, great you can tell these people it's really wearing on them like uh the the stress of this job that they have not seen the the cold light of day since we last saw or known the warm touch of a woman josh <laughs> indeed they're in need of some r and r yeah that's what they call it in the military clearly mike is mike understands what what's being put down there for sure uh, it's uh it's rough yeah in, in the big brother house you at least have the potential for showmances uh this is these are 
This is a, these guys are just drilling all day long and then they're coming back home and watching soccer and getting drunk. It's like not a great life for them at the end of the day. I don't know. I feel a little angry about this though, in some respects, because there's a scene here, a great scene where Mike is learning that his name in German uh, has some meaning. Like, uh, what was it again? It was like, like willful strength or something. Willful like world that. strength or will, will, willful world, strength. World class strength or something. World class. He's the strongest man in the world, uh, Mike Herman yeah. Trout. So I, it, 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 he's learning all that and he's there but then werner is is like oh you know you have to understand these guys were here uh they thought it was only going to be eight months and i I wanted mike to say well like whose fault is that yeah of course like why why did they think it was going to be eight months you said it would only be eight months like it's your fault werner you jerk so this is your fault you put all these guys in this position and i know you think they're such nice boys but they're causing all these problems now josh i'm Team Kai, though, like I don't blame Kai for this situation whatsoever. Some other dope caused the construction accident. Why is Kai getting blamed for this? Mike does not like Kai. Like Mike yeah, has, he just like, doesn't like him. You know, Kai has really stuck in Mike's craw from that one time that Kai was like kind of rude to him. But I mean, we don't know what Mike has observed from Kai in the ten months. You know, he said keep an eye on that guy. Uh, keep an eye on that Kai. Keep an eye on that Kai is exactly what he yeah, said. Yeah, you know, you know the, the actor's name who plays Kai is. Uh, ben Bellaboom. Oh, I love that. Ben Bellaboom. Yeah. <laughs> isn't that, was a isn't great, that your brother's my, name? My favorite line from the fifth element. Ben Bellaboom. Um, <laughs> yeah, but he doesn't like this guy. He's not a fan. So he hasn't been a fan for 10 months. And so he's just going to, he's going to scapegoat him. I I wonder, um, you know, it's certainly we've, we've seen Mike kill outside of the context of being a police officer at this point in the show already. Um, but do you imagine Mike killing Kai? Like, is that something that we are building towards? Like, Werner doesn't want to lose this guy, uh, but Mike really does. And can you imagine that being something that is pushing Mike closer to being sort of like the the rad hitman that we're going to see him be in Breaking Bad? Certainly possible. Possible. I think that we will see. Uh, we will see Nacho have to be put up to that. It, I, that's another person that you could say maybe he's in the the realm where he has to pull that off. Uh, I don't know the the truth of that. I mean, I obviously I don't know because I haven't seen it. I'm wondering who did we see him kill on Better Call Saul besides the cops? I'm I'm trying to remember. Your memory of it would be much better than mine. Yeah, and um, I'm not I sure was, that we've, I was I'm not that sure that we've seen that. I'm not sure that we've seen that he wanted to kill. Hector. So he was ready to kill. And I think that's the distinction, right? Is that initially in season one uh, and going into season two, he was not willing to kill. Uh, he wanted to, he let Tuco beat him up rather than do what Nacho had paid him to do, which is kill Tuco. Exactly. Right? He didn't want to take him out because seemingly he didn't want his hands dirty in that way. He's gone out of his way to not kill uh, in the desert as well. Uh, when he pulls off a lot of these complicated capers uh, to rob trucks and to set up other trucks. Uh, he's not a, he's shooting into the sky, not at people, but he was ready to kill Hector Salamanca for the crime, by the way, of killing a civilian, killing a guy uh, who just seemingly was trying to be a good Samaritan uh, with a truck driver that Mike set up in the desert. So he was ready to kill Hector Salamanca for that. He did not ultimately do that. And I don't know that we've subsequently seen him kill, but I think you're right that he's crossed the threshold in that we've seen that he's willing to do it. So 
if he's willing to do it, what maybe the story for Mike at this point is that Kai is really not a guy who's in the game, uh, at least not directly. And if Kai has broken him down over these months and to the point where he's willing to take some action uh, to protect Gus's interest, uh, we know that that's something he's more than willing to do later on. So he's got to get there. And that's the breaking bad story of Mike Ehrmantraut in the context of Better Call Saul, him actually breaking bad. Uh, we're, we're certainly seeming on that path whether that'll happen or not i don't know uh, but i think you could see that it could happen for sure i think one of the things that we need to see with mike is that like we've seen him kill out of um you know like a need for vengeance with the the killings that happen in that flashback in season one like that has already been done but right. we've seen him shy away from contract killing so far and we know that that's something that he is going to be comfortable doing in the future is that kind of wet work so i think what we need to see is um, that we have yet to see is when does Mike Ehrman Trout look at killing as little more than a business expense where it's really nothing more than just transactional and just something that's part of his gig uh, that hasn't really connected yet. And this simmering feud between himself and Kai, I wonder if that is something that we are building toward and maybe even something where, especially because we know that Werner thinks that this is a guy who is essential to the crew. He's a, he's a good boy. He's part of, he's one of my best uh, that if, if Mike is going to try and extricate this guy from the situation, he is going to need to do it in some way that is, unobvious so is it going to be through the rnr like is there is like oh, is, is the rnr going to provide some level of cover for you know him waiting in the shadows like the batman that he is and like um you know pulling a page out of the gus fring playbook and putting a bag over this guy's head or something like that to asphyxiate him it, those are the kinds of things that i'm that i'm thinking about in terms of what mike could do to to kai just to to make it look a little more accidental but still be very business oriented in his mind that this is going to get things back on track, even though I think you're right. I think his anger uh, is, is misdirected towards this person. Especially that it, it does. I mean, we're, we probably are going to see some R and R. He's probably going to take him out to uh, some of the CD underbelly of Albuquerque, but it's not, uh, it's not something, I mean, maybe Kai does something at that point that, that makes it impossible to let him just skate. Like maybe he commits a crime or draws unwanted uh, like authorities or attention to the, to the circumstances that mean that Mike has no choice, but to do that. Otherwise the whole thing is shot uh, and he's got too much loyalty to the operation and he feels like it's part of his job at this point point you could foresee that circumstance for sure i don't think he's ready to just take kai off the board but he certainly is uh, is is in heading in that direction for sure and it's rough i mean kai getting killed by a bitter jury that's pretty bad that's a <laughs> shitty way to lose german big brother for sure yeah uh anything else from these two episodes that you want to hit on before we close out it's uh it's it's fascinating to me that uh that that we've got the position. I mean, we had Mike apologizing to Stacy and we have Mike, we saw two episodes before this, the big blow up that he had at Mark Evan Jackson in therapy, where he said, this guy's a fraud. I can tell, you know, and he's apologizing to Stacy for that, but he still clearly is carrying around so much guilt about what happened with his son. Uh, and they're in, they're in that position. So we don't really know what's going on inside Mike's head, but apparently at some point, he learned to yell in German, boys, stop. Yes. Well, you know, 10 months is enough time to learn boys stop in German, don't you we think? We certainly see he's working on it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's definitely working on it. Uh, and then the other thing is, are there really, and this is, an, I'm, I'm speaking for Rob here, so shout out to you, my boy. Um, are there really that many criminals in Albuquerque, Josh, that Jimmy <laughs> could sell that many burner phones? 
Yeah, I mean, he's had a very, uh, a very lucrative time in these past 10 months. And you do just have to wonder uh, how big that market is. Apparently, decently big. <laughs> it's certainly sizable. I, mean, I, I think there's probably some repeat customers. I think that in the last in Pinata, uh, we had a we had a statement of some sort that these these only had like 300 minutes on them or something to that effect. So I, I think that's probably part of it for sure is that there's that. But I definitely know that Rob would have uh, highlighted that because there's just so many. He seemingly is selling hundreds and hundreds of these burner phones, and I just, he's got a lot of repeat customers. Maybe that has to be it. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Is there anything else you wanted to highlight? No, I think that we I think we touched. I think that there's a there's a lot of a lot of different possibilities up in the air. I I do feel like we're just at that breaking point for for Jimmy and Kim, which is upsetting. I'm not looking forward to that. And I keep trying to hope that it's like going to be some sort of mundane thing. But obviously, it's not going to be that. It's going to be very terrible. And I don't want to see it. They have to. <laughs> they ha- it has simple. to come to a head. I mean, it's got to come to some kind of head. And they I mean, they do. They they have in the past confronted these issues or they have talked on some level. So we'll we'll see what this looks like. Uh, they she really was giving him a lot of latitude. She had Rich Schweikert in Pinata say, like, these things are all different. You got to take them day by day. Like it could be anybody. They've had a lot of people asking after. After Jimmy. Uh, so I'm not sure she knows necessarily how to proceed. One of the things I'm not seeing though, and I thought I would see more of it is I'm not seeing a lot of the guilt uh, in Kim over what happened to Howard. She seems to have backburnered that herself. Uh, and maybe that's why she, cause she's doing, she's in the good deeds club. Like maybe that's a huge part of why she's giving back to the community. It's because she feels she has to put some good karma into the universe for everything that happened right. uh, with Chuck. But I just don't see her carrying around a lot of that guilt right now. No. Well, that's why I wonder, like, just how bad of a situation is Howard in right now? You know, probably not to the point that it is like very obvious that he is just like at the edge of his, uh, you know, at the end of his rope. Hopefully not yeah. literally. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, because he certainly is carrying that guilt around. But we haven't yeah. seen we, we saw her shout him down, but we haven't seen much else. But I, I feel like she felt she was responsible in part for what happened to Chuck a lot last season. And I just haven't seen it as much this season. So that may be something that comes out when they do potentially have a confrontation. Did you like the uh, there were two montages in this episode? How about the Big Rock Candy Mountain? The whole oh, I anthem? loved that. That song yeah. was stuck in my head for a good couple of hours after watching the episode. The cops have wooden legs josh i want to know more about the lemonade fountain (laughs) it all sounds great like the chickens lay soft boiled eggs like there's good stuff in in hobo heaven take me there take me to hobo heaven like take me to hobo heaven burl lives you know people are gonna have like great stories to tell like i feel like hobo heaven's not a bad place you gotta know the hobo code to get in there though yeah the hobo code i've not learned the hobo mean man lives here is what i saw in chalk on the outside of your house one time i don't want to talk about that Uh, yeah, that's really it. Uh, this is one little Easter egg that I've, that I've got in my notes here. The other guy that was busting the pinatas with Huel in pinata previously seen on better call Saul, uh, in the episode where Mike, uh, confronts the guys in the, uh, parking garage where he shows up for a job. The first time he ever meets Daniel Wormler or Wormland price, 
the guy who he represents with the drug deals with Nacho. Uh, when he first shows up, there's that big mouthy guy who's got all the guns and he's ready to just show off everything. And then there's another huge guy in the corner there. Uh, and Mike gets all the guns off the mouthy guy and he turns and looks at the big guy and the big guy just cheeses it and runs away down into the parking garage. That's the guy who was busting up the pinatas. Clearly a guy, a regular member of the vets, uh, like roster of just criminals for hire. So incredible. <laughs> I, think, I think on the show they call him man mountain. I think that's his character name. Uh, so that's where we've seen that guy before for sure. That feels like a fair name. Man Mountain. Man yeah, he Mountain. looks a little bit like an NFL offense. He looks a little bit like Andrew Whitworth of the Cincinnati Bengals and LA Rams. So. All right. I mean, obviously, if I don't know Big Your favorite Brother, teams. yeah, this is the other thing that I'm, I'm just not... <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm officially lost Oh, Josh, your pain is very special. Woe is you. Stop following. Woe is me. All right. Well, I think that that's good for our coverage here of Better Call Saul. Thank you guys for enduring me in the absence of Rob. You Again, great, Josh. sending all of our best to, to Rob and his family and uh, and uh, Hopefully he will be back next week. Uh, TBD on exactly how that will play out. But of course, Better Call Saul will be back and the podcast will be back as well, at least with Antonio Mazzaro uh, hanging in there. Antonio, you know what won't be back next week is our coverage of USA Network's The Sinner because it's about to wrap. It is about to wrap. We had another similar delay with that show due to just shakeups behind the scenes here. Uh, but we will be back to uh, recap the final two episodes of The Center. The finale will be airing Wednesday evening. Uh, we'll be back before the end of the week with uh, coverage of the final two episodes of The Center. I'm certainly ready, Josh, to talk some Center with you. Um, looking forward to how that all wraps up. If you're not aware, Josh and I have been talking about that all season long here at Post Show Recaps. Josh, how can people get our podcast? Podcast at post show recaps post show recaps.com slash itunes that's uh yeah that's a uh, you songified it that's great uh you can also send us feedback josh how can people send us feedback post show recaps.com slash feedback that's pretty good that's pretty good uh and do you know what the email address is for this show <laughs> is it better call saul at post show recaps.com i think it's bcs uh, at recaps.com yeah okay. i think it's bcs i didn't want to say something stupid like i love you um that uh that that's it that's all i got i want to thank everybody for their patience in this i know a lot of people tweeted at me uh or sent their thoughts in uh for rob and we certainly appreciate that uh we certainly appreciate everybody's patience and understanding at this time so thanks again everybody and uh josh anything else nope just take care and uh thanks for having me i appreciate it oh please you were great thank you again take care everybody bye bye